Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Precision Unloaded podcast. We've got a pretty awesome guest for you today. Um, all the way from California, we've got Travis Ashida. So most most of you will know him as the main man behind the National Rifle League in the USA. So welcome to the show, Travis. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, it's awesome. So luckily, even it's normally we do uh, international interviews. It's normally I've got to get up really early in the morning or something, but California is 21 hours behind. So it it's, it's works out pretty easy to get this done uh, late evening for you and late afternoon for me. So it's not too strenuous. So, um, yeah, this, I, no, I'm, not at all. Yeah. I'm quite looking forward to this chat uh, again with, with what you've done for precision shooting and, um, what it's become in the U S and, and as we do sort of similar, albeit smaller scale stuff here in New Zealand, it's, um, it'll be good to talk to you about, um, how it all come about and, and how you get it done. So, um, obviously, like I said, you're Travis, you started as, as far as I know, or instrumental in starting the NRL, which started as a race gun series, correct? Correct. And is now turned yes. into the NRL 22 and NRL Hunter. Uh, that is correct. Yes. Okay. So it's, if you don't know what that is, you probably haven't, been in the precision rifle game for more than 10 minutes because nrl 22 is massive and nrl hunter is nearly as big if not as big so but we'll we'll touch more on those specific series in a minute and how they come about but so let's learn a little bit about you for those people who are unfamiliar how did you get your start in precision shooting and then from there what led you to um, get involved with match organization or or promotional side of, of precision style shooting? <laughs> so that's a, a fantastic question. Um, my background professionally has been in, in marketing and photography before photography was what it is today. I've been doing photography for, you know, almost 30 years probably. Um and I was working in the commercial advertising world. So um, a lot of corporate, uh, basic U.S. clients. And I had always had a fascination with uh, firearms. And one of my very good friends had suggested that I go into marketing and photography for the firearms industry. Um, in doing so, I met up with a, a company called U.S. Optics, which used to be based here in California, um, actually in my hometown where I grew up. And so I, I went over and met with them and uh, basically offered to do a video for them for free and some some photography for them for free so I can just kind of build a portfolio for the firearms industry. And in doing so, I started learning about what their optics, what their scopes were used for, which is, you know, precision shooting. Um, from there, I learned about the PRS and I learned about different other different rifle competitions like competition dynamics. And so I reached out to those organizations and asked if I can come and watch and then document what they're doing with people utilizing the scopes from U.S. Optics. And so that's kind of how I got into the precision rifle game is I, I went out there and I just started attending matches and started filming them. Um, I did that for a couple of matches and it was a tremendous amount of fun. The community was fantastic. Uh, lots of great people. Uh, the sport was absolutely fascinating. Um, and so 
I think it was in 2015, uh, the PRS, the original owner of the PRS had decided to sell the PRS to a new group of individuals. And during that time, uh, they had decided that they no longer wanted to utilize my my video services or um, utilize the marketing and things of that nature that we were helping the PRS with originally at that time. And so I had went to a good friend of mine, Tyler Frainer, uh, who was the match director f- uh, in Las Vegas. And I had come to him with the idea about starting a separate league more based around some ideas and fundamentals that we had put together. And that's how it all started. Tyler and I uh, had a meeting in Vegas, had a couple of, of cocktails to discuss some ideas, came up with some mutually uh, agreeable ideas, and voila, the, the National Rifle League started. So it, uh, you know, it, we, we didn't invent the sport as far as precision rifle shooting by any means. We just took it and, and modified it to be uh, slightly different uh, based upon how we wanted things to be done. And it has just grown from there. Wow. That, yes, that's pretty, that's quite interesting. We, here in New Zealand, for, for the most part, the area, um, the island we're in, it's, um, we have more of a <clears throat> a practical spin on our precision shooting. So less less just props we have more natural terrain and um right and stuff like that and, and watching some of your older um nrl race gun series videos there there is some similarity in, in where you were shooting and there's more rocks and there's more uh, shooting off trees if, if it was there rather than it always being a prop um I, right. I, I quite enjoyed some of those older videos for that that practical and, and that, that that's you know a. Uh, uh, it's a great con- it's a great segue i guess because precision rifle shooting when i first got involved in 2014 2015 16 so on and so forth at the very beginning of the sport it was very it was much more practical than what it has become today uh over time match directors and competitors and manufacturers have continued to push the limits with optics with the you know, with ammunition, with rifle builds, with everything, so that, you know, precision rifle platforms have become so, um, so precise that it's testing and pushing those limits further and further. And it became to the point where the race gun series lost its practicality because people started trying to add so many different components to their rifle to mitigate recoil, to follow up on shots faster, to become faster, and all of these different criteria that the rifles were really purpose-built for competition and didn't have any other practical use outside of that. So the sport has evolved to be, um, you know, the the Formula One or the NASCAR or, or, or whatever of the precision rifle community you know, which is now what PRS is and what the NRL uh, originally was. And that's kind of why we stepped away from it is because we had decided that we wanted to make this sport more practical and more accessible to the average Joe, which is how the NRL Hunter um, started. That That's pretty interesting. We have, um, my, nearly all of our listeners understand what we do, but we have a, the center fire stuff we have open class which is just whatever 
race gun you want. And then we have practical class, which it's gone through a few changes, but you're not allowed a heavy bag. Um, it's got to be a lightweight bag. And there's a there's now a 15 pound weight limit. Um, okay. For for that reason, and then and we also have a little bit more. They don't have a, um, a tripod or anything, but so it's a little bit more simple. And the idea is that um, trying to hold on to as much we can that practical aspect um, as right. as the heavy guns sort of take over all the, the light recoiling stuff. Well, that's the thing is when Rich Edmonds, the original owner of the PRS, started the PRS, it was because uh, he's a Texan. There was a, a group of friends that wanted to go out and become better hunters. That's the whole reason he started the PRS. And it became, you know, a... Uh, you know, a group of friends shooting and having fun and then it grew and then it grew and it continued to grow until it became the precision rifle series. And, you know, the, the vision of how it originally started has changed dramatically over the, the past couple of years to, to become the race gun type of matches that they are now. And we wanted to bring that practicality of, you know, realistic hunting rifles, realistic gear, things that you can use your rifle for competition and hunting um, and bring that back to, you know, the masses. And that's, again, NRL Hunter. Yeah, yeah. So so we'll, I'll, we'll get the NRL Hunter in a minute. Otherwise, I'll get myself out of order of my questions. But, um, well, sure, sorry. No, 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 don't be sorry. I was meant to pre-send this to you, but I, my project at work didn't go the best today. Um, so... <laughs> So the, NR, the NRL has grown in its various forms. It's it's an internationally recognized brand or an international brand uh, with, with clubs and organizations around the world um, being involved in various ways. Um, did When you guys started, did you ever think or plan for it to be this sort of global, globally recognized um, part of precision shooting? Uh, in all honesty, no. I, I never thought that it would become a global brand. Um, Obviously, we were very excited and happy that it has grown to be what it is. But originally, you know, it was um, it was more focused around the you know our local communities. So the fact that it's been so widely accepted is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's something to be quite proud of. It's um, it, yeah, it, it's it's pretty cool. So now, one of the reasons, um. Well, I'm assuming has had such a big part of the growth is the NRL 22. Um, it's for <clears throat> again for those who don't know, it's a. Um, can, can you explain and briefly what NRL 22 is? Sure. So the NRL 22 um, was conceived with, by Tyler Frenner and and myself. Uh, we co-founded it, and it was designed to offer precision rifle scenarios to the masses. So one of the biggest issues that we have here in the states with precision rifle competitions is typically these matches are going to exceed 800, 1,000, 1,200 yards. Well, that's we don't have a lot of land in the United States to be able to do that. So what we figured is with the NRL 22, we can offer the same type of positions or the same type of scenarios at shorter distances with a 22 long rifle. So the NRL 22 was developed to bring practical um, precision rifle education and, and shooting to the masses by offering a 
five stages course of fire every month to any club throughout the United States that wanted to use it, but you only needed a hundred yard range. That could be a hundred yard, uh, you know, at a professional, you know, uh, legitimate range. It could be a hundred yards at, you know, somebody's farmland. Um, it didn't matter, but we created uh, every month five stages that everybody shoots across the country and competes for score. So it becomes something where somebody here in California can is shooting the same course of fire as the same person, in, you know, as another person in New York. But because of, you know, the atmosphere, things are different conditions, weather conditions, you know, it might be a little bit more difficult or easy, but we're still shooting the same course of fire. So, you know, myself and a friend in New York, we can talk about, oh, you know, what did you think about this stage and that? Because we both ran and participated in the match that month. Um, so we really put together a package, a program that we can basically make it turnkey. We can hand it over to somebody who wants to start a club in whatever area and help them develop that and help them build their club to help promote the NRL 22 in order to help teach precision rifle, firearm safety, and everything that you need to know to originally the plan was you know, get comfortable in NRL 22 and then go to the NRL race gun. But the NRL 22 took a life of its own. It became its own thing, which is absolutely fantastic. So like, as you just said, it's it's got a life of its own. It's become hugely successful, hasn't it? Yes, it's definitely um, a huge success. It is something that has grown a lot faster than we had ever anticipated. It's something that is continuously growing and being innovated um, so much to the point that there's, you know, now international uh, world championships for 22 competitions um, and the whole 22 competition circuit uh, was really brought to life by the NRL 22, which Tyler Frenner and, and myself and our team uh, put together. Yeah, so we we have a domestic series. Well, there's two, but in the island we're on, that's uh, a bit more field orientated because of the ranges we have. But um, that again stems from watching the videos out of the US and and everything. So yeah, like you say, it's grown from what something for for clubs to be able to get into it to to an international sport with a world champs. That's awesome. That's- Absolutely, and and for you know for us, it's. Um, of course, we want the NRL 22 and the NRL Hunter, and we want these brands to grow. But for us, it's more important that people are getting out there and learning this sport and learning this skill set. So like you said, in, in New Zealand, for yourself, it's a little bit different. It's a modified version of what the NRL 22 is. But that's absolutely fantastic because we help inspire you guys to to create this, which is perfect. Yeah, I- With it being so successful and bringing in new competitors, um, it's become almost the gold standard for new competitors to get into the sport, being that it's um, far more affordable than um, Centrefire, let alone race gun Centrefire. Um, do, do you think one of the reasons it worked out so well is the fact, well, obviously the uh, uh, low noise. I mean, we, we, we are heavily suppressed in New Zealand when it comes to our guns. Everything's got suppressor, but Rimfire is... <laughs> is quiet-ish anyway uh ammo is relatively cheap the guns are cheap and it's also easy enough say you were coming shooting with me you could shoot my rifle after me and we're not going to have the heat issues or the the wear issues do so the 
I'm making a short story long here, but the accessibility of Rimfire has you think that's that's the key to the growth, or is it the the simple uh, relative ease of of getting the course of fire? These are the targets you need. These are the props, and so the, the match directors are able to set the matches up easier. Uh, absolutely, I, I think it's a combination of both. Um, Rimfire, so. For me, the first firearm I ever shot was a 22 long rifle. Um, I think Rimfire 22, 17 HMR, 22 Mac. I think these are the first calibers, first rifles that our youth should learn to fire a firearm with because the low noise, the low recoil, the accessibility for the most part of ammunition, the low cost of ammunition, and you can buy a Rimfire rifle um, for a few hundred dollars here in the States. Now, these were some of the considerations that we had taken into effect when the NRL 22 was created. But at the same time, you had companies emerging like Voodoo, who makes custom, uh, you know, 22 long rifle rifles that can be several thousand dollars. I mean, I know gentlemen that are competing in NRL 22 with seven or eight thousand dollar rifles. I also know people that are competing in NRL 22 with less than, you know, a thousand dollar rifle. So the spectrum is there um, for everybody, depending, you know, on your budgets. And a majority of the clubs here in the States have rifles ready for people who don't own a rifle to be able to borrow and learn and try out with. So it's something where, you know, it's, it's affordable for the most part. Um, it could be very affordable if you don't want to go crazy with your rifle build and you have to have, you know, the, the Ferrari of the, of the world. Um, it could be very, very cost effective. Um, Tikas are fantastic. Savages are fantastic. Um, you know, Ruger's CZ, all of these companies make fantastic rifles off the shelf that you can go and compete in NRL 22 with and have fun. Yeah. The, um, the CZ and the Tika are extremely popular here. Um, they're great rifles. Yeah, yeah, I and, mean, yeah, and you. Uh, I may be wrong, but didn't a Tika T one X in like a factory stock win the NRL final, twenty two final? Your lifetime, I, I, I um, something along those lines. It might have won in, in the base class, okay. uh, but as far as yeah, as far as like the overall, um, if memory serves me correct, the rifle is the Voodoo has won overall for the past three years or four years. Okay, I, I compete with the Voodoo, but I've been having a lot of um, extraction issues <laughs> lately. It's <laughs> doing my head in. Like when it works, man, it is the best gun out there. But um, when it stops working, it becomes a expensive single shot. But anyway, <laughs> you know, and that's that's the problem with custom built rifles. Um, Voodoo to me, you know, I mean, they, I've been to their facility, and, and you know, they're a fantastic, fantastic company. But to me, they're still a, a custom rifle. So anytime you have a custom rifle that's being basically hand, you know, made by uh, by hand by individuals. Um, you know, you're going to run into certain issues some, from time to time. We're fortunate enough here in the States, you know, it's very simple to send it into Wudu to get it repaired and sent back. I'm sure it's not that simple over there. But, um, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough to own two Voodoos, and they're absolutely fantastic rifles. But I still own, you know, 1022s, and I still own Tikas, and I, I still own 
you know, a lot of the base class rifles because they're so much fun to to shoot without being too serious about it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I hear that. Well, our series that's just wrapped up uh, was one, the overall series was run by a Tika, so albeit a, a modified, you know, chassis and all the goodies, right. but um, yeah, still worked fine. Um, yeah, so... What do you think the key to growing participation is and having, so not just getting them to the event, but having the competitors return after more than one match? So in my opinion, I believe it is how fun you make the event. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is I see some match directors that go out of their way to help the new person the, the, and introduce themselves and introduce the new person to the group and make them feel warm and welcome. I've seen other match directors that, you know, say hi and then don't really pay attention to them um, other than safety, of course, but they don't really interact with them. So to me, if you're trying to get people to come back, you have to make it fun for them. You have to give them a reason to come back. Shooting a rifle is a good reason, but it's not enough of a reason for somebody to say, hey, I want to go invest a lot of time and effort and money into this sport. But as soon as they feel like they're one of, you know, one of the crowd, they're one of the group, um, that they're welcome and that they're going to have some guidance and they have somebody to share their their stories with, now they feel as though they are part of a community and they want to engage with that. So one of the things that I think you can ask anybody in the world that's been to our matches here in the States, um, especially a match that I'm at, is we are super community focused. So I will spend majority of my time with the new people. And then at night, I'll hang out with my friends that I've built over the, the past couple of years. Um, I spent the time with the new people because if the new people don't continue to come back or get involved in the sport. Eventually it could be 10 years. It could be 20 years, but eventually the sport will die. So we have to have fresh blood coming in. And the only way they're going to stay is if they're having a good time. That's quite an interesting answer. I like that. Um, we have our own ideas on, on, on um, how, how to run matches. And, and that's a um, quite a good point, especially the, end of the match or, or through the day actually taking the time to <clears throat> to get to know these people or, or give them some advice or, or half a hundred things you can help them with and, and and make them feel like they're having a good time that's cool and uh, I, I don't like the idea of a competitor going home having hit zero targets if that makes sense absolutely they, yeah no it should uh, if somebody goes home hitting zero targets then somewhere along the line the organization failed. I agree. I think because even, even let's just say we know they've got a good zero. Okay, they don't have any real dope. Well, it's 22. Hold like 2.2 mils and you'll hit 100 meters or, or whatever. So, But it's having the people either in their squad or the ROs or the, the match director it, recognizing that and helping them. Yeah. Exactly. It's So I'll give you a, a example. Um, a couple of years ago, I was shooting a match in Arizona with a buddy of mine. Uh, it was his first time shooting a 22 match, but he is a very accomplished center fire shooter. And we were out there just to have fun, uh, just, you know, having a good time. And I came across this young lady 
um, and it was her first match, I believe, first or second match. It was one, you know, a very new to the sport. And she happened to be in our squad. And the entire time, we were joking around with her and her dad and her family that was there to the point where we would say, hey, if you clean this stage, your dad's going to buy you a new car. And so her dad would laugh and she would laugh and, and she'd look at her dad like, you're going to buy me a new car? And of course, we're not being serious, but we made it fun. We took yeah. the stress of something that made no, you know, that didn't make sense to be stressful and we made it fun. And when she needed help or we saw something that she was not doing correctly, we would give her some pointers. And that doesn't hurt me. I don't care if I win. You know, that's not my goal. My goal is to make sure people are having fun. So, again, to to your point is if you pay attention to the people that are there that want to be there but don't know where they fit in and you welcome them and make them feel like they fit in, then you're going to develop that relationship where they're going to want to come back and introduce their other friends to the sport. Yeah, because they don't leave thinking, man, I didn't hit many targets. They'll leave thinking, man, I had good good fun with cool people and I hit some targets I maybe wouldn't have been able to the day before or something. So, yeah, that's... um, Right. I think, to be honest, that's, I think, something uh, us here could do slightly better is is that, um, I hate the word, but inclusivity um, and just, yeah, I like it. Anyway, that's um, interesting. Yeah, and it's it's something where, you know, for for the NRL 22, it's a little bit more difficult because they're one-day or half-day matches. Um, but, for instance, at the 22 championships, um, I wasn't able to attend this year because we were having a child. But the year before, you know, we had a dodgeball contest, you know, where, you know, hey, a- a- after zero, after registration – Everyone get together and we're going to play dodgeball. And the last person standing, I gave a hundred bucks or something like that. That's cool. Yeah. And nothing to do with shooting, but it brought everybody together to play and have fun and relax and, and blow off some steam. And, you know, the kids got to throw balls at their parents and boyfriends got to throw balls at their girlfriends. And it was just fun. And, and nobody thought about shooting. It was about, Hey, let's just go be big kids and, and goof around. And that's, those little things help bring the community together. Yeah. So speaking of of getting people into it and and and, and retaining interest, um, you guys have you mentioned called a base class. So that's um, is that like production class, base class, or is it just a financial restriction on the class? Can you, can you explain that a little bit more to me? So there's uh, so this is a part you might have to edit. Yeah. <laughs> the. I don't know the exact price point. I should have looked it up before. Oh, I didn't know what fine. we were going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what the exact price point is, but it's the base class has a financial cap. Yeah. And then anything over that is going to be in the open class. Uh, and then there are certain restrictions in the base class that you can do to your rifle. So um, base class cannot be a heavily modified rifle, um, whereas the open class, it could be whatever you know, whatever you want to do to your rifle, whatever you want to spend. Yep. Yep. That's, that's cool. So, it stops the, um, uh, the sort of the big financial race. Um, yeah. 
And, Correct. And, and we, we wanted base class to be somewhere where the average Joe who, who just getting started or who didn't want to spend a fortune um, didn't feel that they were getting beat because of gear. Yeah. And there's, there's so many options now, especially in the US, less so here, but um, of scopes that I'm assuming a lot of their price points are to fit under certain rules like that, like um, there's Vortex Venoms and the Arkans and stuff. Are they the sort of scopes you see in, in base class? There's... Honestly, a wide variety of scopes. Everything from, yes, you'll see the vortexes, you'll see Bushnells, you'll see a, a wide variety of uh, like the element. You'll see a bunch of different scopes out there. Um, it's really to to me. It's if you're trying to get into the sport, don't worry about the gear. Mm-hmm. Go out there and have fun with what you have, and see what other people have. So if if you're like me, I get into something new and I go out there and I, I start buying stuff oh, and yeah, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I get a new pistol and I have 10 holsters until I find the right holster. I like when I could have just asked my friend to try his holster on cause he had one. Um, so it's the same concept. You know, if you are that guy that wants to buy everything or that gal that wants to buy everything, go for it. But here stateside anyways everyone is so welcoming and and friendly that if you want to if you see me at a match and you want to use my rifle or you want to use a piece of my gear and this is for most of uh, everybody that i you know actively communicate with they'll let you borrow it yeah no problem um you know we've even gone to the point uh, a couple of years ago a lady, uh, um, a lady and her husband were shooting. He was shooting Mills. She was shooting MOA. They were having a hard time communicating back and forth because they weren't understanding the languages between Mill and MOA. Um, I saw her. I saw them struggling and not having fun because they were struggling to understand each other. Not because the match was hard, but because they couldn't understand what they were telling each other to do. So I gave, I went and gave her my scope right off my rifle. I took it off my rifle. I gave her my scope. I said, here, you can have this scope. I don't want it back. Yeah. This is a a mill scope. You can now talk to your husband, go have fun. Don't worry. This is what, what is making you not have fun is ridiculous. So let me fix that. Here's a, now you guys can talk the same language. Go have fun. And now there are match directors and they're having fun. (laughs) That's awesome. That's a, uh, for the greater good of the sport, and and it's um sacrifice your own day for someone else. I love that. That's and I mean some people Absolutely. are more fortunate when it comes to getting gear than others too. So it's a bit easier to to move a scope yeah. on than, than it might be for other people. So um that's very very common. No, I, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I, I am blessed to be able to do that. Um, but at the same time. Even if you can't afford to give something to somebody, but you can help them understand or help them communicate better, or you can help them um, realize what they need to change or how to change it, then even verbal help is a, a, is a, a great opportunity. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So in the last couple of years, NRL 22X has, has come online. Um so is that that's just more of a um, uh, a little bit longer distance, a little bit harder version of NRL NRL twenty two, and it, it does not have the monthly course of fire. Is that correct? 
Correct. So the NRL 22X is the big brother of the monthly course of fires. So the X matches are completely designed by the match director. Um, and they are able to shoot out past, you know, a couple hundred, several hundred yards. So it's whatever that individual match director wants to design for that match. So I, I, I mean, I, Wish I could tell you what the farthest distance was. I'm not, or is, I'm not quite sure, but I know at X matches, I've shot targets out to 400 yards, or I've shot at targets out to 400 yards, which with a 22 long rifle is pretty difficult, right? It's pretty challenging. Yeah, that's a long way. Uh, it is. <laughs> um, and the X matches are for the people that have reached that level of knowledge and success in the monthly series where they want to continue to challenge themselves with harder, more difficult scenarios. So, so you, you, going way back, you touched on that NRL 22 had become its own beast and its own, <clears throat> its own thing. Do you have a large amount of competitors that purely stay in the NRL space at, at the 22 space rather than moving into PRS or NRL Hunter? And so, they obviously they're going to upskill a lot, and they they do the X. So is, is there exclusively kind of rimfire competitors? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. We've actually we've had competitors that shot both rimfire or centerfire and rimfire, and they fell more in love with rimfire, so they only shoot rimfire now. And then we have a handful of people that shoot rimfire and centerfire still, but the rimfire crowd is very um i don't want to use the word exclusive but they're they're very loyal to shooting room fire okay yeah that's cool yeah we've, we've still got a fairly even split here in um in new zealand most most people do both um but we certainly see far more newer shooters along to room fire uh, by a large right. margin yeah yeah so what role has social media played in growing NRL 22 and bring in new competitors. Do you think with the sort of <clears throat> as NRL um, come online and social media got real big, you think the timing was right and it just sort of worked hand in hand or is it just through word of mouth and clubs or? So social media is that necessary evil, right? Um, social media definitely helped grow the NRL as a entity uh, that's race gun back in the day, that's 22 and that's NRL Hunter. Um, and the reason it's helped is because of the ease of access of information and content as such as photos and videos. So because we are able to distribute these on platforms and you can use, you know, Facebook and YouTube and Instagram to find certain keywords. Um, and because Specifically, the NRL 22 was something that we had started the 22 uh, sport in that in that sense. Uh, social media definitely helped helped launch the growth of the the sport for sure. Which is weird because social media typically doesn't like the firearms industry. Yeah, I I I, I get that being doing various social media things, and <clears throat> as you know nowadays, we get pretty hammered by um uh, not not following their guidelines and such but it, it's still social media is still responsible how i see it for me attending my first match for meeting all of my friends now through matches it was like you say that necessary evil still made it happen um yeah i mean 
believe it or not, social media had canceled. They shut down our profiles before for NRL 22. For so NRL, we had to start. Wow. Yeah, we had to start over a couple times. That's um, uh, must be frustrating. Um, it, it is because you know, I mean, without getting into the politics of social media, we don't sell firearms mm. by any any sense. We we are not an FFL. We don't do any of that. Um, so we were purely showing a sport, which you know doesn't make sense to me why why they closed us down, but they they did. We moved on and we we grew bigger and stronger. So it's yeah. in the past. <laughs> it's in the past. <laughs> okay. So NRL Hunter, a very, yes. very cool concept. Not concept, it's reality now. Um, again, touched on earlier, um, trying to keep practicality and, and, and precision shooting, sort of holding hands rather than um, <clears throat> becoming its own thing. So... It's a new format. It's only been around for a couple of seasons now. Uh, looking from the outside in, it looks like it's taken off and proved to be very popular uh, to the point of a, a guy who used to be in New Zealand now in South Africa is, is running some, I believe. Um, yeah. And so it, it's, you know, it's become global. So what's the idea behind NRL Hunter? I know we touched it a little bit earlier, but and, and how does it differ from the NRL race gun and PRS? So the concept behind NRL Hunter is, again, to bring the practicality back to precision rifle competitions and precision rifle shooting. We wanted a format that would teach people how to become better ethical hunters with the gear, you with learning how to utilize the gear that they have in the most efficient and effective way. So there's a lot of differences between the NRL Hunter and you know, the, the precision rifle series, um, everything from scoring to target sizes and distances, uh, NRL hunters, all blind stages. Um, we have weight limits on our rifles. So we have a couple of different divisions. We have a factory division, which has to be an approved factory rifle, and it has to be under 12 pounds. That includes the rifle, the scope, um, if you're going to use a bipod, that has to be included in the weight. Anything that is that is uh, attached to that rifle minus the sling has to make that 12-pound weight. Uh, then we have the open light, which is a custom rifle. Again, it has to be under 12 pounds with the same weight requirements. And then we have open heavy, which is a 16-pound rifle with those accessories mounted on as well. Um, we also have a skills division. So... The skills division is basically you can come out and compete with any rifle, whatever weight it is, whatever caliber it is, and you can come out and learn and have fun with the gear that you have, but you won't qualify for points or a prize table. Okay. Yeah. Then we also, in the open light and open heavy divisions, have a minimum power factor of 380 thousandths. And we do that in order to keep out the Wildcat smaller cartridges like the six, uh, six BR or the six Dasher or or the smaller you know calibers that you'll often find in the Precision Rifle series, and we wanted to keep those calibers out because those calibers are fantastic, but they're not necessarily practical. No, and if and, that makes sense, and you can run a 
a six BR and a lighter gun, it's still going to be quite easy to shoot. But if it's a three oh eight and a light gun, it's going to be a bit more of a handful in it. And that's what would be used. It is. So, so yeah, correct. So, so while we're on it, um, was it difficult determining the weight limitations for uh, each respective class? Uh, you know, because as I'm sure you have dealt with, there's so many different styles of hunting and opinions on what rifle weight and scope combinations are, are appropriate for for hunting. So, like here here in New Zealand, uh, look, there's quite a lot of alpine hunting happens in the, in the South Island, and so super lightweight guns are very popular, like seven pounds, big magnums. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. So and so, a lot of people think hunting has to be a really really lightweight gun. And then there's other people who do more private land hunting um, who use a heavier gun because they might access uh, several kilometers with the truck first or whatever. So so finding that, I mean, you've got to draw a land in, line in the sand somewhere, right? And some people are going to like it, some people aren't. So w- w- was that a bit of a back and forth or was it pretty straightforward? Um, so the NRL Hunter concept was originally developed by Scott, Sauer, Scott Satterley and myself. And a lot of the ideas that formed what the NRL Hunter is came from Scott Satterley. Um, one of those being the weight classes. So for the weight classes, it was definitely difficult to say, you know, this weight works and this weight doesn't and so on and so forth. And absolutely, there's been a lot of different opinions over the years of what the weight classes should be in. It Should we add additional classes? But what we have to look at is what the U.S. market will accommodate. So when this NRL Hunter was originally developed, it was based upon Western hunting. And a lot of the Western hunting stuff, um, when we developed the rules, we used a lot of the rules and guidelines from um, Idaho Fishing Game. So the state of Idaho, their their fishing game regulations is where Scott got a lot of his um, inspiration and rules from. So it, it's it's tricky because a twelve pound rifle is a very light rifle in comparison to a twenty five pound rifle, which you would see in the precision rifle series. Agreed. Yep. Um, a twelve pound rifle when you're doing backcountry hunting is a very heavy rifle. Mm-hmm. Um. When we look at it, there's not that many people in the U.S. that are backcountry hunters. So to make a class that was ultra lightweight, let's say under 10 pounds, wouldn't draw enough people to justify the effort to create that division. But to make a 12-pound rifle... When we looked at a majority of the most popular factory style rifles to make it 12 pounds with a average optic and a standard bipod was very doable. So if it could be done with a factory rifle, a custom rifle could do it as well. Yeah. And then with a slightly heavier rifle, you know, we said, okay, well, for the people that, you know, want to really kind of build something out and maybe, you know, they're truck, not truck hunters, but you know, they're going to drive in, they're going to hike 
half a mile and then they're going to hunt or they're predator hunters or or something where the weight isn't as significant of a factor um that's how we came up with the 16 pound the 16 pound limit yeah okay so you guys did a lot more research than i was anticipating that's that's very interesting it's um i like that you've used the you said Idaho, didn't you? So it's that's cool. Yeah. That's um, there's a lot of thought gone into that instead of just you know picking this, that, and the but other. But like, I just went on a backcountry hunt, and my rifle that uh, preferred barrels uh, they built me a, a rifle I had ordered from them. That rifle optic everything came in at eight pounds, just over eight pounds. Yeah, you know. Um, so I think that there's a definite. Uh, you know, there's a definite cool factor of having a lightweight rifle. But again, when you're backcountry hunting and you're using a lightweight rifle like that, you're usually shooting once or twice at the animal, right? Hopefully just once or, you know, maybe twice, sometimes three times, depending on the size of the animal. Um, but when you're shooting at a match, you're shooting 18 to 20 stages with, you know, four rounds or eight rounds or, or whatever per stage, it's a lot more abuse to the person shooting that rifle. Yeah. Yeah. My, my hunting shooting, gun is a, uh, a 260 Remington and a MDT HNT 26. Yeah. And I had a lightweight stock on it. <clears throat> and I, I shoot it like once a year, maybe, right? We do like a, a small hunter match. We do here like a, an eye opener type match and, before what we call the roar, which would be uh, red stags, they roar in the when they're on um, mating. Anyway, oh yeah. Anyway, and then uh, but it's a handful, like because I've been shooting fifteen to twenty pound guns all year. Um, I get behind this lightweight gun, and it's like, man, this is this is beating me up, and I, I cannot shoot it. Yeah, I can't shoot it yeah. like I do a um all my all my all my match guns. So yeah, it's to the to the point. I actually yeah. put a heavier yeah. scope on it. <laughs> Yeah, because recoil mitigation is different. Follow-up shots are different. Time back on target is different. There's a lot of different factors when you're shooting a lighter rifle. Yeah. Um, you know, the rifle I was just telling talking to you about, that's a, a 7 PRC. Oh, wow. So it... Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a big rifle. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, and that's it. That's, you know, just over eight pounds in an HNT chassis with the loophole Mark V and carbon fiber barrel and... A, um. Uh, I'm going to forget the name. It's Kelby. It's Kelby's very lightweight skeletonized action. Um, I forgot the name of the model, but it's a very light rifle. So to shoot that for an entire match, it is a doable. Yes, but your shoulders going to be sore regardless of who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did it take some getting used to, um, High rec well, high recoiling ish, um, lightweight gun compared to what you normally shoot. Um, yes, it, it, it did. Um, so I typically for the NRO Hunter, I'll typically shoot in the factory division because I'm trying to promote our sponsors. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm used to shooting a 12 pound rifle now, um, even to the point where I just shot a PRS style, uh, outlaw match. Um, and I shot my 12 pound rifle because I don't want to carry a 25 pound rifle. Yeah. It's not fun for me to carry a 25 pound rifle anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so I, I'm used to lighter, you know, lighter rifles with with recoil, but that seven PRC in an eight, you know, sub nine pound rifle is um it, it's it'll it'll wake you up. It don't let you know it's there. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I, here's me complaining about my two sixty and you're doing it with a seven PRC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh well. So but I, I I love big calibers. I, I mean I love sh- I, I usually hunt big game with the three hundred Win Mag before this, you know. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah. I, I I like big calibers. Yeah, I, I was always I, I used to be like that. Now I'm shooting smaller and smaller. But um, how has the <clears throat> how has the more practical aspect of um, find, rage, and engage um, has it been adopted by competitors? You know, um, rather than the sort of here's your distance, here's your target sort of standard um precision style stages that have they got well, into yes it? it's absolutely it's a, it's a totally different game because of the fine range and engage scenario um when you don't know where your targets are it makes the stage a lot more difficult so what we do is the first target of every stage has a big placard next to it that stands out mm-hmm. so that everybody should be able to find at least the first target and then the targets after that will become, you know, increasingly difficult to find. Yeah. But that skill set of being able to find things in an environment that don't necessarily belong there is the exact same skill set that you're going to use when you're hunting. Mm-hmm. You're going to notice what doesn't belong there, the flicker of an ear or an off-white or, you know, something, a, a weird shape, something that doesn't necessarily belong you there. You're teaching your eye how to find what's what's not right in that picture so that you can become more, more efficient in engaging that target. And it's the same thing with hunting. We have passed, in my, you know, in my hunting lifetime, I have passed by so many different animals. I didn't even know that were there. And my buddy's like, it's standing right there and I don't even see it. And I'm like, what do you mean it's standing right there? I can't see it. And then he shows me and I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. I should have, I should have saw that. So it's the same thing. We're training people how to find those things that they're that are standing out in that environment so that they know how to engage them. Um come a real hunting scenario. It's funny you mentioned that. I I'm looking at a, a reasonable stag on my wall and um red stag and when I shot it, my friend spotted it, <clears throat> and he's going, "It's it's it's right there," you know. And he, he he referenced like an old log or something. He goes, "Come up from that old log, yeah, yeah." And I was like, "All I see is a bunch of um, branches." And he goes, "No, no, that's that's not a branch. That's antlers." And then, <laughs> then I was like, "Oh!" And then it's sort of my eye focused, and oh wait a minute, there's a that's that's a that's a big red stag, <laughs> you know, poking his head out of the bush. So uh, yeah, it's um. We we run uh, in our in our rimfire series. We occasionally run blind stages, not the whole match, just just one stage. Um, at varying level, levels of, of of difficulty, and the the really accomplished hunters do well in them, and the military guys do really well in them, especially the um right. the the sniper guys and who got the bit of extra training. But um, I am quite average in them. I would say the um, especially looking into foliage and shadows oh, yeah. and stuff like that it's an area where i really need some tuning up yep so like? if you look at our champions for the nro hunter you know matt allwine john pinch rusty omer if you you know these are the the most winning shooters in the nro hunter series they're all professional hunters yeah 
Yeah. I mean, Rusty Omer's, I mean, he's got, I mean, he was an accomplished uh, archer. Matt Allwine is an accomplished archer. John Pinch has hunted more big game than anybody I know. These guys are, I mean, they're the real deal hunters. So it makes sense that they do so well in this type of competition. I have toyed with the idea of doing a full rimfire, well, one of our rimfire series matches as a full blind match in a similar fashion. It's just a bit hard with um, locations and stuff like that, everything blind. Right. And I'm not sure how popular it would be <laughs> with some of our previous blind stages, but um, but yeah. Um, but it's, So I'll tell you, a, 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 you keep bringing up the red stag. Yeah. Right. So that is my one of my bucket list animals to hunt is the red stag. Okay. They're, they're um. Uh, now I fear most um, people out of the US see the uh, the big thirty plus point stags. Is that what you're familiar with that we have in New Zealand? I I've seen that. I'm not a I'm not an antler hunter. Yeah. I don't. You know. I I want something that's respectable or something that's unique. Yeah. But I just think it's a magnificent looking animal. So so those big thirty plus point ones you'll see they're actually um they grow. Red deer commercially, and then they, um, the stags they grow for velvet, and so they're end of life velvet stags. Okay. That these outfitters buy, and then they, they, international tourists come and hunt them. Um, and <laughs> gotcha. they, they usually quite, um, anyway, uh, I don't want to um, destroy the, <laughs> the outfitting. No, 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 <laughs> no, but so here, if you find like a, um, like a big 10 point or a big 12. Um, you, you're doing pretty good. Uh, I'll send you a photo of my one later off, offline. Um, but so there's varying degrees, and then different areas have different heads, like um, uh, stuff like that. Different, yeah. But right. they are it's popular. They're, yeah. See that that for for me, that's what hunting is. That's how I like to feed my family. So you know, I haven't bought red meat from the store in five, three, three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is wild wild animals that I've shot red meat. I buy chicken and stuff because whatever. I don't have land for chicken. Um, but, you know, even when I went to South Africa, the biggest thing was is I know I can't bring the meat home, but I want to at least eat something that I shoot there. Mm. So if I ever go to New Zealand for for the red stag, I want to at least eat the red stag um, and say that I've, you know, I've had that opportunity. It, de- it uh, depends how far through the uh- – the raw they are because they get quite um sour tasting by the end of it to put it kindly. Oh, really? Oh, well, because 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 they're um urinating on themselves and they don't eat. Oh, they don't eat for okay. that period of time, and then they're fighting, so they lose condition and they smell quite bad. So most people, depending when you get them, will make them into sausages or salamis, and then but like a pre-raw stag when they're feeding up before their uh, mating season, they're quite good because they're quite fat and um so it just depends right. when you get them but um so th- i'm not sure if you realize this but here in new zealand we don't have any um there's no native deer species or anything so all the species we have are introduced so there's no hunting seasons it's just all year round right um so you can right. hunt them like look if, if there was one outside right now i could i could hunt it essentially there's no um yeah it's so it's, it's quite good in that regard because it's um an introduced species, like I guess you get the uh, the axis deer in Texas. They have axis deer in Texas and Hawaii. Yeah, so yeah, similar things. Um, right. And we've yeah, also I, got tar. I was fortunate shaman. to hunt axis deer. Oh, those I, I quite like yeah. the look of them. They're pretty cool. Um, 
yeah. no, none of them here though. We've got oh. quite a few species, but none of those. I saw um, Pedro. Am, I'm not going to say Pedro's last name right. Pedro Ampura or something. He's got a YouTube channel. He's a Kuyu hunter. Yeah. Uh, sponsored by Kuyu, and he was just I think in New Zealand hunting the tar. Yep. Yep. So beautiful. Yeah, beautiful animal. It's, it's again like to. You can get outfitters and stuff, but most of them are on public land, and all you need for the public land is um, it's called a permit. But all you literally do is go online and print a thing off. Like there's no money involved, and then you can huh. and hunt them because again they're an introduced species. Um, right. Uh, the tar, or oh, not that I'm an accomplished tar hunter. I've, I've shot a couple smaller ones, but from what I gather, it's more the in, the mountains are the challenge, less so than the hunting the animal itself people may right. disagree with that but it's where, where they are is the challenge um because they're legitimate up the top of mountains <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah no hey cool hey listen we, we're coming up to an hour and i know you're a busy man so we could probably wrap up there i'm gonna ask you one last thing and it's on the spot a little bit. what's one piece of advice you would give to someone new to the sport uh, one piece of advice that I would give to somebody who's new to the sport is, I have already said it is, is just have fun. It, <laughs> go, go and go with an open mind and go with the expectation of having fun. Not, you don't have to shoot every target. You don't have to, you know, hit every single stage you, you get tired halfway through and you want to stop stop the most important thing is that you have fun and that you're safe um and if you do those two things everything else will come to you so just uh just get out there and give it a try that's that's very good advice and that's not just for new shooters too i'd say even for experienced competitors just have fun yes <laughs> because because not everyone can win and does it really no. matter if you win a medal or a trophy? I don't know. But anyway, no. <laughs> have fun you with know, your friends. We, yeah. yeah. We see so many people get so frustrated and end up having a bad day because they missed a target. I'm like, does that make a – is that really going to change your life? Is it that important that you missed that target? You know, it's like brush it off. Remember, you're here to have fun and learn. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. Not very good advice. All right, I'll uh, I'll I'll push stop on the podcast here, and then I'll, I'll quickly have a word to you before we uh, get offline. But thank you for sure. coming on. Um, this has been excellent. I've uh, um, I've been I'm, I'm quite excited to have you on the podcast. To be frank, um, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. And um, yeah, I hope everyone's enjoyed this episode. Uh, cool. All right, thank you, Travis. Absolutely, thank you. It's been a pleasure.